Good afternoon and welcome to the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast. Uh, it's myself, the your host, Dr. Andy Matheson. And as usual, we'll be running through some articles that have caught my eye, either because they're interesting or I think they might change the way I practice. So the first ones that we're going to be kicking off with are to do with COVID. And these were a couple of papers. The first one was in the BMJ. And this was just looking at the longer term impact of COVID. Now, obviously, this is this is something that's constantly changing and constantly learning more. And I think one of the articles I'd talked about previously had been a uh, English study with 600,000 people that had been published in Nature Communications. And that was just talking about how even with mild symptoms, um, people have persistent problems at 12 weeks down the line. Now, we had then talked a little bit about um, in our athletes how we seemed, they seemed to describe this phenomenon where they weren't breathless, but they just couldn't, uh, they just legs felt heavy. Um, they didn't feel any jump in their, um, in their spring and no spring in their step. And this seemed to kind of go with a few studies suggesting there's not a problem with the lungs, but something to do with how oxygen is delivered to the tissues. Now, this one is just, again, looking at how long these symptoms might go on for. And, and we've heard kind of six months uh, suggested by a few people. This was called post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, six to 12 months after infection, population-based study. Uh, and first author, sir, was uh, Rachel Peters. Last author, sir, was Woodford Kern. And essentially what they found was that about 6.5% of people will still have symptoms at one year. Now, they didn't have a great response rate to um, their data collection, which would maybe think that, make you think that only people who were having symptoms had responded. So maybe they're, they're overestimating. But actually, the, the numbers are similar to some other studies that are bouncing around. Uh, and... In many ways, I don't think it matters too much um, for the for the exact numbers because I think what this is sort of reinforcing for me and in my practice is every time someone comes and saying, "I think I'm overtrained," "I think I might have reds," "I think I'm underfueling," "Do I need to take vitamin D?" I will need to take a COVID history, and maybe their symptoms will match up to just a mild COVID infection. Um, but unless we discuss it with the athletes, we might go down a few rabbit holes before we get to the to the answer. So uh, useful and again, just just reinforces a change that I've been bringing into my practice. The next study was looking at high fat diets and lipids and cholesterols. So this is something where when you chat uh, in my head, almost the kind of pub type chats um, with other GP colleagues or with, uh, with other doctors about what's the problems with high fat diet. The, the people who haven't looked into it too much will often say, oh, surely that can't be good for you. It'll cause your cholesterol to go up. Now, I like this article, it's effect of high-fat diet and exercise in the morning or evening on lipid subfractions among men with overweight slash obesity, a randomized trial. And it was uh, Moholt, the first author, and John Hawley, last author, published in the European Heart Journal. 
And what I liked about this was just the the attempt, and it's John Hawley, who's not a sort of particularly pro uh, sort of low carb diets, uh, to put it mildly. Um, what he talked about was just the subfractions, and this idea that actually what we measure in the NHS certainly the these sort of LDL and these. Um, uh, sort of what we would call standard cholesterol measurements aren't, aren't particularly useful. And what they found was actually it was the larger lipid particles that seem, that seem to have the increases in this study, which would go with with what we seem to see with with mortality studies and uh, fatty lipid bits. With actually with a high fat diet, you don't get that rise in the smaller LDL, the smaller lipid VLDL particles. Um, so not not a particularly big study, uh, 24 men, so I don't think it's going to change my practice, but hopefully we'll start to see more and more data on exactly what is going on uh, when we go for higher fat diets. Um, and this was a decent high fat one, 65% of energy from fat, so really going for it. Um, and how... Um, how is that is what we will see going to be able to challenge that um, sort of opinion that you often come across that high fat diet must lead to a higher cholesterol and that must be bad. So uh, interesting and we'll see what, what they come up with next because hopefully this will be leading on to a bigger study. Now the next article was in cell metabolism and on the background of we looked at a hit article last time uh, and it was last time time before I, I completely forgotten um, and I had suggested that maybe it wasn't a particularly hard hit program uh, and that actually it was basically just doing a little bit of exercise um, I really liked the uh, the HIT program in in this one. So this was called Time Restricted Eating and Exercise Training: Improve HbA1c and Body Composition in Women with Overweight Slash Obesity: A Randomized Controlled Trial. And first officer Lahagnes, last officer Maholt. So. Unfortunately, only seven weeks long, not a bit longer, would have been nice. 131 women, uh, and they were trying uh, three groups. One was uh, sort of high-intensity training on its own. One was high-intensity with intermittent fasting, and one was the control group. So what I really liked was the high-hit sessions here were four four-minute bouts at 95% of max heart rate, which is pretty savage. Um, so first of all, hats off. I mean, no wonder it was only seven weeks, really pushing the woman. Average age of about 35, uh, so 36.2 plus or minus 6.2 years, um, all of whom were known to have uh, overweight obesity issues. So a really hard training program, plus adding in some intermittent fasting, which, which they've managed well. So firstly, can you do hit of that sort of degree with intermittent fasting? Yeah, they, they, they didn't have a bad dropout rate. So you can. And in fact, they almost highlighted the fact that they managed high high adherence. So A, it can be done. Um, obviously, these women had a lot of support. Uh, and then the interesting thing was, the it was only with HIT and intermittent fasting together that they saw a significant effect on HbA1c and fat. So actually, 
maybe that's something we ought to be pushing pushing harder although i have to say with i think almost any training with with that intermittent fasting of that intensity would has got to be causing some uh, some changes um the next paper was a bit a little bit lighter and not going to change anything that i've done but it just caught my eye uh, it was about cardiovascular um, events in astronauts um, and it was talking about the it was a longitudinal study that found that cardiovascular events were twice as common in astronauts as match control groups now of course there's clearly lots and lots of confounding factors there, um, the impaired sleep, ionizing radiation, uh, exercise and diet changes that they mention, um, but obviously you don't have a control group and etc, etc, etc. But um, it, it, for me, what I liked was it, it just reminds me of that idea that high intensity training or very elite training isn't good for you. And as we talked before um, about reasons why that meet might be and, and the impact that very high intensity training might have on mitochondria and disease, etc. And, and that probably just reflects that again. I imagine those astronauts are falling comfortably into the uh, elite category. The next article, let's just grab it up, was talking about the different ways you can take on your uh, fuel. So, da -da. so it was called uh, 13 Carbon Glucose Fructose Labeling Reveals Comparable Exogenous CHO Oxidation During Exercise When Consuming 120 Grams Per Hour in Fluid, Gel, Jelly Chew or Co-Ingestion uh, with Mark Hearns. Uh, and Louise Burke with James Morton as the last author. Uh, now, I could only get the poster of this, so I don't want to sort of touch on it too much. Um, I mean, having 120 grams per hour and the participants were reporting minimal gastro symptoms, which must mean that they were very well carb trained. Um, so a reasonably select group, um, and it was just nine people, so very small numbers. But I suppose what's the takeaway is they, they found that the labelling showed very little difference in the uptake um, between fluid, gel, jelly chew, or co-ingestion. So when people say to me, what's the best one? And, and we're obviously all aware of, you know, sort of splitting up into different types of uh, simple carbohydrate uh, to use all the pathways available. Um, but beyond what form does that need to be in? And does it matter? And can the athlete just take what they like? Well, that's, that's a good, this is a good argument for just taking what, what you might feel, feel works best for you. The next article was looking at keto diets uh, and the microbiome. Uh, and this was another one, uh, a bit like the first article, where when people say to you, but what about when, we, when you talk about different diets? And clearly most of the time, there's just so little known about how diet uh, interacts with our health. And in this case, our gut microbiome, that you're often left saying that's a good point and I don't have any proof for, for what I think is going to be the right answer. So this was looking at what's the effect of a ketogenic 
Mediterranean diet on athletes gut microbiome composition and for me this is that question of when people say okay I get it ketogenic diet might be good for many aspects of your health but surely not getting enough fiber in because that will fall into carbohydrates will do bad things to your microbiome uh, and this was on 16 uh, male soccer players uh, and it was a Kamefi diet or Western diet and they found you know doing 16 srna sequencing so um only 16 rs it was only 30 days um looking at alpha diversity uh and i don't think they did real sort of functional work so fairly low level microbiome investigations but they didn't show an obvious difference between uh the 30 days of ketogenic and 30 days of western what to take from that? Uh, some reassurance that clearly we're not completely trashing the microbiome with um, a ketogenic diet, um, but is Western diet not great for your microbiome anyway? And would a better control be a, a different diet? Probably. Um, so lots of issues with it, um, but again, just starts to add um, to the, the data that things might be safe and you can at least give some reassurance. The next article was in Frontiers in Nutrition uh, and this was just highlighting eating disorders, risk assessments in men who practice team sports. Now there's been lots of work, certainly a few years ago from Morton's group, pushing the idea and the national, sort of international guidelines on uh, reds in men and clearly this is something that can happen to all sexes uh, moving away from the female athlete triad and obviously whenever we see people doing weight restricted sports such as some fighting sports um, then we have to keep at the back of our mind that reds is possible and eating disorders linked in with that uh, and this was actually just a nice little challenge about what do you think is important with eating disorders in men and what are your risk factors? And I know the ones I, I tend to think of, they found looking uh, at their observational study of 276 athletes doing team sport, doing questionnaire studies, that the key important things were younger than 21 years and having a BMI larger than 25. And then uh, the more predictable things are high level pressure and family risk factors. Now, the being younger than 21 fits in with all this of eating disorder stuff and, and the UK nice guidelines, etc. I'd forgotten about having the, the larger BMI and it always falls off the back of my head. So there was a really nice reminder that actually people with higher BMIs are at higher risk uh, of eating disorders. The final article was just focusing on fueling the female athlete and this was just an article was of Burke, Louise Burke, uh, fueling the female athlete, auditing her representation studies of acute carbohydrate intake for exercise. Um, uh, about a month ago, we looked through an article and looking at some guidelines that had come out, trying to suggest what is the correct way to fuel the female athlete, having a, a slightly more scientific approach to um, the... Uh, the training cycles, uh, how you match them with hormone cycles, when is the best time to carb load. Uh, this was essentially just a call out from the great and the good, Ackerman, Elliot Sale, Stellingworth, Burke, saying that there's still just no good evidence. And 
Uh, presumably this is a driver to get some more research going into it and not let uh, this problem fall off the uh, the agenda of everyone. And uh, yeah, good to good to be reminded that there is a real lack um, of uh, research and uh, hopefully those people will uh, be raising the money to create the research teams to, to get us some, some useful answers. So a uh, bit of a run through everything there. Hope you have a great rest of the week. Goodbye.